Please join me again in Luke chapter 15. I think that uh, many Father's Day messages will uh, take opportunity to speak directly to the men about their crucial roles. And uh, let me say something on that note. It's true of all of the men. Whatever your station and place or how many kids you have or don't have or whether they're at home or not at home, uh, don't underestimate the influence of godly manhood that this world needs, but the young people growing up in the churches need to see. And that's something we can all take part in. Uh, But this morning, I'm going to draw our attention to the only flawless model father that has ever existed. And that, of course, is the almighty God himself. Now, if I were to pose a basic question today, it's really not so basic. Why was the Bible written? Now, there's many good answers to that. But I guess if we had to give the main reason, the reason that all other reasons have to fit underneath, why were we given written revelation? Now, somebody says, well, it's to tell me what not to do. I mean, some view it as just a cosmic rule book. And God, of course, is the universal kill joy uh, to some. Oh, some might say, well, uh, God gave us the Bible to to make me happy. Uh, Somebody says, another person says, well, it gives me guidelines and standards. Oh, we're moving up the pole maybe a little bit. How about with, uh, it supplies us with correct doctrine. It gives us something substantial to talk about and preach about and truth to share with a world that doesn't frankly have very much to share. Well, we're getting closer. How about to give us a sole authority for faith and practice? Well, that's uh, something you will see in our own doctrinal statement. I heartily agree with that. We're getting closer. How about somebody says the Bible was given to show us the way of salvation? Well, it certainly does that, but I would contend that's still not high enough. The Bible was given to us the main reason to show what God is like to a world that's wallowing in false notions about him. And everything else is central to that purpose. I heartily agree with something Tozer said. I don't remember which of his books, but he said, the most important thing about any person is what they think about God. The most important thing about you is what you think about God. The most important thing in your Christian life is what you think about God, and does it conform to what He's revealed about Himself? Now, when the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world, and those are profound words we sing most Christmas times, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. He was truly, and still is, humanity wrapped in deity. What is it that He came to show? Well, many things, but chief among them was what God is like. John 1.18 says that no man hath seen God at any time. That's in his totality. Nobody has looked upon God in all of his fullness ever. Men have had glimpses, but nobody has ever seen him in his fullness. They could not survive. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. That word declared means exegeted. In other words, Jesus Christ is, was, and is the perfect representation of what God is like in human form. 
When he taught that first public sermon, that Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7, and he declared that men ought to pray our, our Father, which art in heaven. I think we get used to that terminology and perhaps it's a little bit hard for us to appreciate it. He said that to a either mostly or exclusively Jewish audience. That was revolutionary terminology. Uh, We have to remember that no Old Testament saint ever dared to call Jehovah by that title. They called him many things, but not Father. That, among other things, is developed more fully in the New Testament. Think of John's exuberant words in in his first epistle, chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Behold, look, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that, that we should be called the sons of God. What does Father represent, or what should it? Blood relation? A tender, sacrificial care? Undying affection? Wiping away tears? Helping to heal pain? Giving large amounts of time to walk alongside? A desire for an unbroken, intimate relationship that's growing ever deeper, deeper, all of that's included in this concept of Father. And one of the many places that the fatherhood of God is developed is in the so-called parable of the prodigal son here in Luke 15. Now I'll say just a few things about this parable as a whole. It's actually a part of a threefold picture. In fact, all three of the parables recorded here are really one big parable. It's sort of like one of those uh, pictures you might hang in your living room that has three sections that all form one picture. There's the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And there have been many uh, godly brethren who have called this the greatest story that Jesus ever told. Now again, that's largely subject to opinion, but it does show uh, the impact this has had on a worldwide scale. Now this parable was given in response to the attitudes of the scribes and Pharisees actually murmuring that Jesus was daring to receive publicans and sinners. And uh, I guess you can substitute that. Picture the most notorious, infamous, flagrant, outcast sinners in the world. And that's what these people represented. Notice verse 2. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. It reminds me of a little girl I heard about in London some time ago. She was traveling along the street. It was a cold evening. She stepped into a church building, and there was a sermon in progress. And the minister got up, and he actually read verse 2. And she came to him after the service, and she said, I, I'm so excited. I never knew my name was in the Bible. And he said, young lady, what, what's your name? And she said, Edith. And he said, I'm sorry, your your name isn't in the Bible. And she said, oh, yes, it is. You just read it. Jesus receiveth sinners and eateth with them. (laughs) Now, she may have been a little wrong on her uh, grammar, but she got the concept enough that Jesus does receive sinners. And so the Lord Jesus takes their wrong thoughts, and like He so often did, He used it as an opportunity to teach some things about the heart of God the Father towards the wayward. Now we see three major characters, of course, in this parable. There's the older brother, uh, the one who actually occasioned the telling in the first place. He's uh, typified by the Pharisees and the scribes. And then there's the younger brother. He's the one that we call the prodigal. He's the catalyst. He's the one who reveals the attitudes of the others. 
Now let me point out that term prodigal is sometimes misunderstood. That term actually doesn't even appear in the text, although the concept does. It doesn't mean wanderer. Today, if we say somebody's prodigal, we might mean they're just wandering around. The term prodigal actually means more of a squanderer than a wanderer. It means wasteful. In fact, you see that appear in the text when he spent his substance on riotous living. The idea of riotous is wasteful. He was wasting resources. He was wasting giftedness. He was wasting his life. He was throwing away that which was precious. Well, just in passing, what happened to him? Most of us are quite familiar with his story. It began with a dissatisfaction with his situation. And uh, by the way, uh, the devil has been doing that since the first conversation between him and humanity recorded in Genesis 3. What was the very first seed sown into Eve's mind? Hath God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Isn't God overly restrictive? Boy, a lot of shackles in this garden. You might want to think about getting out where you can spread those wings a little bit. A little restrictive around here. So it began with a dissatisfaction with the situation, and boy, has that destroyed many a life. Meditation on that, of course, leads to the departure from the place of blessing. Going into a far country where the voice of conscience and reason and accountability and spiritual influence will be far behind. No need to have the conscience chiming in on me when I'm having my fun. Now is there? And then you see the degradation of sin in this far country. And that's what sin does. That's what sin always does. It mars and desecrates the image of God in man. It ruins lives. And you see a period of discipline coming. Seeds were sown and eventually the harvest comes up, leads to despondency, and he gets to the place where he's actually envying the meal of the hogs. And finally, he comes to himself, it says. In essence, he returned to sanity. I'm reminded of Nebuchadnezzar there, aren't you? Seven years in his Boy Scout Eagle program, right? And then what happened? His sanity returned to him. And along with his sanity, what happened? He recognized God for who he was. You know, sin is insanity. That's what it is. It's living as though God is other than who he is. And so this prodigal, he comes to himself and he says, where am I? What am I doing here? How did I get here? I have a father like that. And I have provisions like that. And I have stability like that. And I'm here. He comes to himself. He determines to go back. And you see his repentance there is genuine. It had a permanent intention. And you see his revealing attitude in verses 18 and 19. I sinned against heaven and against thee. Oh, he knew his error. There was no excuse. There was no more swagger. There was no expectancy of getting off the hook this time. But he was going to go back. Now this younger son, of course, represents the publicans and sinners that the Lord was receiving. But the central figure, I know we call it the parable of the prodigal son, and technically that's kind of a misnomer. It would be better named the parable of the loving father. Because it's actually the father typifying the heart of God Himself that is the central figure in this lesson taught by the Lord Jesus through story. Now, what do we see about this father? We're just going to look at some of what this teaches us about the fatherly heart of God. It begins with what we can call the father's loving and painful 
permission or at least allowance. Now, how's that manifested? See verse 12, here comes Junior. Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. The Father does it. Now, we're spared the details because that's not the central point. And we can imagine if this were a real-life scenario, there would have been an attempt at reasoning with the misguided youth. But uh, regardless, the father actually goes against his previous wise plans, which were a thousandfold superior to those of his son, and he divides the inheritance early. And of course, the son packs his bags, he loads up the money clip, he heads for the figurative Greyhound station, and we're spared the explanatory details. Now think about this. Number one, the father could have said, no. No. Two simple letters and a period thrown in. Now that says a lot. But he didn't. A father with this kind of wealth and influence could have tried to prevent it or command the servants to hinder him. Hey, take the wheels off his chariot, would you? He could have issued threats and tried physical restraints. He could have gone ahead to block the pathway. He could have followed him to a distant land. But in this case, he did not. He gave him the carnal desire and he let him leave with it. Now, let's be honest. If this were a parenting seminar, and this was our case study, what would you think of this father at this point? I mean, if this father, uh, you, you didn't know, it was told by Christ himself as an illustration of God himself, what would you think about this father? Is he overly passive? Is he derelict in his duties? Is he like Eli who refused to restrain his sons? Friends, know that that's not it at all. Has God given man a free will? Does man always do what God desires? Does God always force man to comply? No. You see, there's a vital principle in God's dealings, not just with the world, but with His people. Here's what it is. God's allowances don't necessarily equal God's desire. Just because God gives you something, even something you really desire and that you've prayed about, doesn't necessarily guarantee it's the will of God for you. Here's what I mean. Sometimes those things are divine allowances due to a stubborn heart that won't learn any other way. And the Scriptures are filled with examples of that. I, I think of Israel. Here they are in the wilderness. I'm sick of this manna. I'm just, I've had enough. I say, what are we going to eat today? Manna. What, what's for lunch? Manna. What, what's for dinner? Manna. I'm sick of it. And they begin to do this. Here's a terrifying passage I find, Psalm 106.15. They're asking for quail. Here's what it says. And He, speaking of God, and He gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. So sometimes that stubborn adherence to something, God gives it knowing that along with that is going to come the withering of the inner man. Israel had to have a king, didn't they? David had to have Bathsheba, didn't he? Solomon had to have a thousand wives, didn't he? The Jews living under Moses, particularly the men, they had to have permission to divorce their wife for anything, didn't they? 
And do you remember when asked about it, what the Lord said? Moses allowed it because of the hardness of your heart. He was saying, it was never God's design. That was never His best for you. That was never His heart desire for you. He wanted something better. But because of your stubbornness, He let you have it. I mean, think of our Christian life for a minute. It, you can ask yourself this. Do you rely primarily on shut doors to determine God's leading? In other words, do you kick and push and shove until God has to restrain you unmistakably? Now, don't get me wrong. God does open and shut doors. Now, there are times when you reason through the Scriptures in all honesty before the Lord, and you're, you're at an impasse, and there's two or more directions that are that are in accordance with the mind of God, as far as you can tell, and you're praying, and I've counseled people, pray that God will open and shut doors, because He will. But there's also times where the Scriptures are pretty plain. And we keep asking God for plan B. I know that says, but gimme. Well, I know that passage, but gimme. You see, that's a dangerous place to be because the leading of the Spirit is not primarily running into brick walls. It's walking through open doors at God's appointed time in His way. I think of Psalm 32, verses 8 and 9. And the Lord saying, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. In other words... The Lord wants such intimate fellowship with us that He just looks a direction and we go. Because we understand His mind and we understand His heart. And He says, Be not as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle. Don't be like a mule. My friend, there's many professing Christians that toe the line and straddle the fence. They basically keep slamming off the wall, daring God to stop them. But see, the thing is, next time the wall may not be there. He may let you have it, whatever it is. Secondly, we see here the Father's patient discipline. Now, I realize you can look at that and say, what discipline? I don't see the Father doing much of anything, at least correctively. You see, God's discipline is often a misunderstood concept. It's similar to God's wrath. When you think of God's wrath, you may think of fire falling from heaven and earthquakes opening up the ground. There's actually seven different major manifestations of God's wrath in the Scriptures. And one of them is what we call the wrath of abandonment or passive wrath in Romans 1. You see, the wrath of God is manifested by these words, God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them over. In other words, one of the ways God shows wrath is just by letting people have what they want. Now, with respect to a child of God, we tend to think that God's discipline is always swift, cataclysmic, and decisive. Things like acute physical pain and lightning bolts and sudden heart attacks. But see, the manifestations of, of God's discipline or the fruit of walking paths of sin can take many different forms. I'm not going to list them all for sake of time. There are eternal ones, loss of rewards. There are uh, many temporal ones. There are external ones. The church may have to get involved. There may be sickness or death sometimes because of sin. The New Testament makes that plain. Some of the internal ones, there's loss of communion with God. There's loss of the awareness of sonship, not loss of salvation. But one of the things God may take when you deliberately walk in sin, He'll take away the sense that you belong to Him. Security may vanish for a time. Not because you're not secure, but you're not acting like it. And that's one of the ways He'll discipline. There will be continual vexation a lot of the time. A number of times in the last 20 years, I don't know how many, somebody's struggling with a particular area, maybe they're defying God in a certain area, and one, one of the marks that that person truly belongs to God, you know what it is? A constant vexation of spirit that won't go away. 
like Lot, vexed his righteous soul from day to day, yet he stayed in Sodom. But if you ask Lot, are you happy, brother Lot? He would have had to say, no, I'm, I'm not very peaceful here in Sodom. Now, why don't you leave? Well, I just don't think it's time yet. But I dare say one of the more common elements of God's discipline is letting us have what we keep grasping for if necessary in order to reap the natural consequences of the direction that we are so determined to go. And uh, we refer to that as the law of sowing and reaping. And one of the reasons it's often unrecognized is because it's often very slow in coming. To the point where this human nature thinks it got away with something, and it appears to be very passive. Was this father passive? <laughs> well, if he depicts God himself, the answer is no. This father died a thousand inward deaths over the direction of that boy, and it ripped his heart in half. But he knew the only way he'd learn that lesson was to let him go. Now, what's the difference between God's anger and God's grief? <laughs> if you're a believer in Christ, you'll never see God's wrath. Wrath is what's left when grace, mercy, and peace are forever past. We see it poured out in the book of Revelation without admixture. In other words, undiluted, omnipotent fury. You talk about scary words. But see, to a child of God, God's reaction to your sin isn't born out of wrath. You know, God doesn't discipline you because He's furious. He disciplines you and I because of a heart of infinite love. And a heart of infinite love that is holy and undefiled must result in great grief. Have you ever thought about the grief of God? That astounds me. I mean, when you or me as a blood-bought saint, a possessor of eternal life and a joint heir with Christ, when we choose to sin, we bring unspeakable pain to the heart of God. Why do I say unspeakable? Because a being who is infinite, who has infinite love, must also experience infinite grief and pain when we sin against Him. Thirdly, we see the Father's expectancy. You see verse 20? Here comes the Son. <laughs> and... Uh, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. <laughs> now maybe the son's consternation was growing with each step towards home and he's rehearsing his speech the whole time. Remember, he had it planned out before he ever left the pig pen. Here's what I'm going to say. And I imagine in real life scenario, the whole walk back, he'd be going, maybe he had a note card just to make sure he didn't miss something when the emotional weight came pouring down on him. And he's, he's rehearsing what he's going to say and he's thinking about the wasted years and maybe he's wondering, maybe they forgot about me. Maybe, maybe the gate's locked. Maybe my family moved. Maybe they changed the key. And as he approached that familiar final hill and the sights and the sounds and the sense and the familiarity of home began to go through and resonate in his memory and fill him with shame over what he'd forsaken and the pain he'd caused. But long before he ever spotted his father, his father spotted him. Because you see, ever since he departed, his retreating silhouette had been etched in the mind of that father and his eyes had been continually trained in that direction, waiting and expecting that same form to return home once again. And once he caught sight of that repentant son, he was off to meet him. 
Isn't it great that we serve an expectant God? I know He wills men to be saved and many won't. That's true. But don't get the idea that God is perpetually frustrated that men just won't listen to Him. From God's side of the ledger, not one of His eternal counsels will fail to come to pass. Remember what He said to the Lord Jesus? Sit thou at my right hand until thine enemies become thy footstool. He's expecting that. The Lord Jesus said, I'll not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That's expectancy. How about in reference to the lost? Well, what's God's sovereign mind on that? Again, it's the mystery of human free will and divine election. But Romans 8 teaches the second part of that. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called. And whom He called, them He also justified. And whom He justified, them He also glorified. That's expectancy. Now the same can be said about the wandering sheep that are about to return home. You see, that's the beauty of this parable as three different sections put together. You see, in the other two, there's an active searching. But in this one, there's the patient waiting because God is searching and pursuing after those that are wandering. And when they return, what do they find? He's already there waiting for them. And they come back. And what did he find when he returned, this prodigal? He found the father's compassion. The father runs to him and had Compassion. Now, compassion is a, a strong inward yearning. It's a very, very emotional word. But it's emotion coupled by action. It's used frequently of Christ in the Gospels as he viewed the shepherdless multitudes or the suffering individuals. I think of the son with the demon-possessed or the father with the demon-possessed son. He's crying out, have compassion on us and help us. And the Lord does. Now, I think it's necessary to say something about the role of a Jewish father in the midst of uh, really a rebellious nation that we live in. Frankly, in America, we're used to smart-mouthed teenagers. Uh, the world will tell us this is normal. It is absolutely not normal. It's just become normal in America because of its rejection of God. We're used to such a thing as generation gaps. Uh, we're used to these sort of things happening as sort of a normal occurrence. But I want to paint a little bit about what would have led to the shock factor in his audience when he painted this picture. And he did that for a reason. In the time of the patriarchs and under the Mosaic law, I'm quoting from Unger's dictionary here. He said, while the father lived, he continued to represent the entire family. The property was held in his name and all was under his superintendence and control. The children, even the grandchildren, continued under the roof of the father and grandfather. They labored on his account and were the most submissive of his servants. The property of the soil, the power of judgment, the civil rights belonged to him only. And his sons were merely his instruments and assistants. The father's blessing was regarded as conferring special benefit, but his malediction, special injury to those on whom it fell. And you can think through in the Old Testament of different men on their deathbed conferring blessing and, uh, and, and things that weren't such a blessing like David, Jacob with some of his 12 sons. And even Esau, fool that he was, at least humanly broke down in tears when he realized the blessing had been stolen. His reasoning was carnal, but he at least understood that this was a pretty big deal. So the Jewish father had a solemn obligation to teach them to obey the law, to make them familiar with Jewish history and customs, to lead in worship, the keeping of the feast, the killing of the Passover lamb. He was responsible for their education. He was expected to teach his sons a trade, and they were largely expected to remain in it. Even the Lord Jesus did that. He chose their spouse. He governed when and where the wedding would take place. 
The father exercised a vast influence over them even after marriage. Striking, cursing, or persistent rebellion were often capital offenses at the request of parents. Now, I'm not suggesting we return to patriarchal times. I'm merely illustrating the backdrop in the minds of his hearers when he explained what this son had done. Now, fast forward to the time of the telling of this parable, and Jews had lost the civil authority to carry out capital punishments, but their idea of reverential fear for their father was still ingrained in their thinking. They would have been shocked when the Lord's painting this word picture. It would have been kind of, remember David's anger? when Nathan points out, he paints this picture of what a guy did, and David's like, that guy's got to die. Their reaction would have been like that. This kid, the axe needs to fall on this little fool, and I hope he's struck with lightning. He basically wished his father dead. That's what give me the inheritance meant. I wish you were dead so I could have your stuff. He left and thumbed his nose at extended family and community who had poured into him and helped him to grow up. And to top it all off, he lost all of his inheritance in a very short time, living in total filth. Now, one in that situation would expect a couple of things. Normally, in Jewish custom, one would have been the rejection and wrath of the older brother. Now, again, in our culture, we think, eh, my older brother's mad at me, big deal. In the Jewish mind, that was a very big deal. Because older brother held the keys to the family when dad was gone. You did not want his displeasure. And often in Jewish culture, those who lost money, especially among strangers, and they totally disgraced their family, they would face what was called the kazatza ceremony, which meant the cutting off. They would be publicly disowned by their father because they had disgraced his name and reputation. Uh, He would take a clay pot, And he would shatter it at the feet of his son. And that essentially meant, you're dead to us. You are ostracized. You're no longer my son. I will never, ever take you back. This is still in some Jewish minds. I spoke to a man last week. I can't share all the details. The man was saved a year ago out of a shocking depth of evil and perversion. He traveled clear across the country to speak to his Jewish family about Christ. They cut him off. He called me traveling through because he didn't know who else to talk to. But he said, I expect they're going to have a funeral for me pretty soon. They're going to mourn my death. And I'll never hear from them again. But with that backdrop, what what does this father do? You don't see condemnation, you see compassion, and you see condescension. You see the extreme opposite. The father runs out to meet him. Now, family patriarchs in the Middle East didn't run. It was ignoble and it was undignified. In fact, it was considered a disgrace for men over 40 to run. He would have had to lift up his robe and bare his thighs, which was another disgrace. So we see his father has compassion, but he actually disgraces himself to embrace 
that boy. I'm reminded of Elijah running before King Ahab. 1 Kings 18. You remember that? Who else does that remind you of? Is there somebody else that utterly disgraced himself to embrace you? Well, what did Jesus show? He showed what God is like. That's what he showed. And so he, he embraces him. Um, can you picture the appearance of his son? He left a swaggering, jewel-studded, arrogant piece of humanity and pockets full of money and his head full of vain notions and returns a broken young old man aged far beyond his natural years. Even the stench of his clothing. Remember this guy. He didn't even have money to eat. He didn't have money to stop at an inn and get a hot bath. He didn't have money to sleep or do anything. He returned in total filth with the pig slop still jammed in his toenails. The father falls on his neck and kisses him and he doesn't even pause to assess his pathetic condition. He merely spontaneously reacts when the one that his soul loves returns home. And that kiss not only assures his welcome, but seals his pardon. Even more shocking than that, the father restores his son. You see, Junior never even finished his speech. You remember there was one clause of this that was left out. He never even got to say it. The father just cuts him off. Before he ever said, I'm not worthy to be your son, make me a hired servant. <laughs> father calls a feast. Now in Jewish history, again, there's scarcely anything more Jewish than having a feast over something. And sometimes I wonder if we're missing out. Not on the food. We like the food. I get that. But... And they knew what it was like to take three, four, five, six entire days set aside simply to celebrate and magnify something God had done. And some of those were commanded to them, but others they took up on their own. The dedication of Solomon's temple, seven days. Esther's victory in the Feast of Purim, Hanukkah. The celebration of the victory of the Maccabees, that was an eight-day feast in the intertestamental period. It was a deliberate remembrance of a noteworthy event that was supposed to be remembered for years to come. And the father does that instead of a rejection ceremony. And the amazing thing is it's not even on a trial basis. There's great joy in his heart over it. Think of David. Remember Absalom returns from a far country and what happens? David gives him a cold smooch and basically says, you can live in my kingdom, but I'm not about to be close to you again. That's not what this father does. This father kills the fatted calf. That's the Kobe beef of ancient Israel that was saved for the honored guest. He puts on him the best robe, a sign of wealth and prominence. It's interesting, the father doesn't seem to wonder if the son's filth will defile his robe because he's confident that his robe is sufficient to cover the son's defilement. He puts a ring on his hand. The power to transact business in the Father's name as an official representative or ambassador for the Father once again. He puts shoes, sandals on his feet. Servants didn't wear shoes in most of those households in that day. Sons wore the shoes. It was a sign of sonship. Now stop and think. The application is pretty clear to you and I, isn't it? We fail. We sin. Maybe it's understood quickly. Hopefully it is. But sometimes you've been in a far country. And you come to yourself. You come to sanity. 
and you think that's it, I'm going back. You're expecting him to lift a pot and shatter it at your feet. Say, that's it. What's the heart of this heavenly father? He joyfully calls the feast, kills the calf, clothes you in a robe, puts the ring of ambassadorship and the sandals of sonship to go out and do his will and restores you to fellowship with him. And not just that, it is his perfect joy to do that. You see, the Pharisees and Sadducees and the scribe, they were so wrong on God's compassion, they didn't get it for a lot of reasons. Sixthly, and we're done, we see the father's response to the elder brother. Now, not all the families in such a festive mood, are they? Uh, older brother comes from the field, verse 25, he hears the music. I, I, you know, I picture this servant, he's got one of those little party hats and blowing a kazoo. And the older brother says, what, what, what's all this? Hey, did, did you hear? <laughs> Let me just say this. There is a hermeneutical difficulty. In other words, making the exact application here is difficult. Let me just say something on that. Who I mentioned the elder brother is uh, typifies the scribes and the Pharisees. Let me say this. Before the cross, these were all Jews that were at least in a covenant relationship to God. There's a consistent use in these parables of sheep and sons on purpose. Uh, this parable is not primarily evangelistic. It's been used that way, but the gospel actually isn't here. Uh, someone is not saved merely by reading the parable of the prodigal son. There is no sacrifice of Christ. There is no death, burial, and resurrection there. So it's actually teaching restoration from one who's in a covenant relationship with God to returning to a place of fellowship and blessing. Now, the Pharisees were obviously lost men. They were unregenerate. They were uh, Christ-haters. But if we're going to bring the application across the dispensations, what's the application of this elder brother? Here's what it would be. It's the mostly faithful ones whose lives are not marked by long treks into the far country. Those who didn't run off, didn't vanish, didn't waste their inheritance, they've been around the whole time. I think one application of that is it's a natural human tendency to show a wrongful disdain for those who do not live up to their side of the bargain with God. And rather than hurt for them and for God, we get angry at them. And consequently, we can get frustrated with God for showing mercy when we think He should drop the axe. Did any of God's saints ever make that mistake? What was really happening when Moses hit the rock instead of speaking? Was he mad at the people? Yeah, but I would submit he was mad at someone else because that someone else wouldn't deal with them. Must I fetch water out of this rock, you rebels? Whack! Why didn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh? It wasn't because he was scared. Jonah was prejudiced. Jonah knew that if he went to Nineveh, there was a good fight and chance God was going to show mercy on those people. And he thought, if I go the other way, they won't hear and maybe God will incinerate them all. 
And he actually goes to sit on the hillside when he finally does show up and preach. And rather than rejoice, this guy, you want to talk about a revival. You want to talk about results preaching to a pagan nation. This guy should have been filled with joy. And he goes and he sits and he's mad at God. Why? You can't show mercy to them. And can't you see? They need to be wiped out. Second Corinthians 2, same thing. First, they wouldn't discipline the erring brother. And when he finally repented in 2 Corinthians 2, they held him at arm's length. Oh, he can't, we can't show mercy to him. No, 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 no. Um. Well, you see the son's frustration, though. And the father comes to reason with him. What mercy? Look at verse 28. He was angry and he wouldn't go in. I ain't going to that party. You've got to be kidding me. I'm going to my room. Slam. And uh, the father goes to entreat him. And what's the substance of the son's anger? <laughs> Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. What's the substance of what he's saying? I've been faithful. You never rewarded me like that. My idiot brother got what he deserved. And now he returns home after shaming the family with absolutely nothing. And he's being treated like a hero for simply doing the little thing he should have done in the first place. And that I've been doing all along. Now admit it. That sounds reasonable, doesn't it? I think if we were, if this guy came and said, well, here's the situation, we might start the conversation with, I sure see why you're upset. I see the Lord looks deeper than that. Look at the father's response. How does he respond? Son, verse 31, thou art ever with me. His first response is his own presence. Thou art ever with me. I wonder if we could see like God does, what is the greatest consequence of sin in the life of the believer? It's distance from God. You know, it's possible to deal with sin for self-centered motives. Many people do. Someone may come and they have a problem and they say, well, here's what's going on. And you, well, here's what the scriptures say. And they may say something like this, you know, I'm just tired of the guilt. I got to deal with this. You know, I just, I don't like the consequences and the vexation. I've, I've got to get this right. You know, I'm just, I'm tired of, of the way that people are seeing me because of this. Were you able to catch that all three things I just said were purely self-centered still? They still only want to deal with their sin because of how it affects them. Now this would never happen, but let's say somehow you could know that God would give you free indulgence to do any sin you want. And there would be no consequence whatsoever except a loss of fellowship with him. Would that be enough to stop you? Should be. The father responds with his presence and he responds with his own possessions. Look, he says, all that I have is thine. <laughs> In other words, eldest son, you could have killed the fatted calf a long time ago. All this is yours. You, I think sometimes we can get frustrated in a situation like that because we haven't appropriated all the blessings God's laid at our feet and we refuse to believe God for all the things He has made us and He has given us. And then we get mad when He shows that on somebody that we think is unworthy. When he's given the same standard.
state and standing to all of his children. Then he defends his rejoicing. <laughs> he says it was meet, it was fitted that we should make merry. He's saying, son, listen to me. It is perfectly right that we should be rejoicing. Now, let me say something. If you back up to verse 7, the first third of this overall parable, the Lord says, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. See, here's where the need for context is so vital. Because on the surface, what does that seem to be saying? It seems to be saying on the surface that God is much more happy when you go sin up a storm and come back than if you just kept walking with Him. Now, what you know about other passages, could that be the case? Not a chance. You see, God loves the pathway of the righteous, and it's always better to not sin in the first place. But remember, he's talking to Pharisees and scribes, and here, here's what he's saying. The genuine humility, the genuine, the genuine repentance of the most wretched and defiled publican causes God to rejoice far more than a self-righteous attitude from somebody else. He says, my rejoicing was fit. It was meat. It was appropriate. Why? He says, because this my son was lost. He was essentially dead. As far as a specific purpose in that family, he was dead and lost, and now all of a sudden he's found. What happens when a prodigal returns? They go from being dead in the sense of not useful to God very much. Not because they've lost salvation if they're really in Christ, but because we are only fruitful as we abide in the vine. Conduit gets clogged. We don't bear fruit. It was never ours to begin with. I hope that in the midst of contending for the faith, which is necessary, we can truly mimic the Father having genuine compassion and hopefulness for the wayward and being thrilled to pieces when they return to their senses and God shows them great mercy. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're a prodigal in some way or another. You're saying, I'm, I'm, I'm in a far country. Not sure exactly how I got here, but things aren't what they were and what they should be. Well, let me tell you about our Father. You come and confess sin to Him. Oh, you won't get those years back, maybe. But I can tell you what you'll find if you come in genuine repentance. You'll find great joy from the heart of God. You'll find that He'll point back to the time when He came to the earth and the person of a Son was totally disgraced Pay the penalty for your sin. And you'll find that he's thrilled to pieces to wrap you in his robe to remind you of who you are in Christ, to put the ring of ambassadorship on your hand again, and to put the sandals of service on your feet. And I want to tell you this morning, no matter how prodigal you are or have been, if you're still breathing this morning, 
God still wants to bear fruit through you. He's not going to break the clay pot at your feet because Christ has already been broken. He'll not ostracize you because Christ has already been ostracized. But you've got to come to your senses and come back. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank You for this, this glimmer, this window into Your glorious, beautiful, marvelous, infinitely loving heart. A love, Lord, that, that we, we can barely begin to grasp. I pray, Lord, that everyone here because of Your Word and Your Spirit's illumination, will have a genuine, powerful, overwhelming sense of Your affection. Lord, You don't just expect repentance from us, but You are joyful. There's actually rejoicing in heaven when sin is properly dealt with. Maybe there's some people here today that need to help the angels rejoice. And they need to come back from a far country, wherever that is. I pray, Lord, You draw them with cords of love and mercy and compassion. We thank You, Lord, that Your goodness leads us to repentance. That You're ever merciful and tender. In Jesus' name, Amen.